moment one was eight to seventeen. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel, whose Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I, I may reap some harvest among you as well as the rest of the Gentiles. I'm, un, I'm under obligation both to Greek and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jews and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Thank you, Bethany, for reading today's scripture passage. My mother-in-law, Edna, was born in uh, Cuba. When she was a teenager, her parents sent her to Canada to complete her high school and enter college. While studying, she fell in love with a Canadian, my father-in-law, Sam, who was serving as a missionary in St. Lucia, a Caribbean island. They nurtured their relationship by writing letters to one another. It was all they had. Letters would usually take three to four weeks to arrive. What do you think Edna was hoping to hear from Sam in those letters? Obviously, she wanted to know what was happening in his life, but more than that, she wanted to hear words of affection. Was he still thinking about her? Did he love her? After a few years, Edna's brother came to her door with a letter and a ring. He proposed to his sister on behalf of Sam. Her longing for a relationship with Sam had been rewarded with engagement to be married. What would you want to hear from another person? Would you want to hear that the person was thinking of you? Would you want to hear a word that would strengthen you? Would you want to hear a word of affirmation for persevering in a difficult pandemic season? And, and then I have an even more important question for you. What would you want to hear from God? What would you want to hear from God? In the verses read by Bethany, Paul lingers over some personal matters. He shares his heart with the Roman Christians. He talks about what they mean to him. Why is this so important to Paul? After all, he had not planted these churches. They were most likely founded more than two dec decades earlier by unnamed Jewish Christians returning to Rome from Jerusalem from Pentecost celebrations in that city, as mentioned in Acts chapter 2, verse 10. Many of them, Paul did not know. But to him, they were family. 
His personal word to them is a word from a sibling in the church family. The word brothers that you see in verse 13 means siblings. What does Paul say to his family, to his siblings in Rome? The first thing he does is express gratitude for his brothers and sisters because their faith in Jesus is famous far and wide. And he is not thankful for just a few of them. He's thankful for all of them because they are all important to God. This is so different from some of the negative rhetoric we hear so often today. He could have started with, you have tension in your churches. Wake up. Your theology, it needs some adjustment. Get it right. Look at all of your shortcomings. What's wrong with you? No, Paul begins by affirming their faith in Jesus. And he says that he remembers them affectionately in his prayers when no one is watching. They were never far from his mind. Paul says, I pray for you constantly with gratitude, with gratitude. This kind of word would have been novel for these new Gentile Christians. Why? In first century Rome, life was characterized by grave uncertainty and anxiety. The rapid spread of mystery religions, kind of like our New Age movements today, and the thousands of magical papyri bear clear witness to the loss of confidence in prayer in the Roman Empire. It's a very sad story. No confidence in prayer, loads of anxiety. It sounds like our 21st century world. Followers of Jesus, like Paul, on the other hand, believed with all their hearts that God heard their prayers. God was both personal and sovereign. Their prayer life was fueled by passages like Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. And Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. Paul lets the Roman church know that he prays for them constantly. It must have been a huge encouragement to them. Are you encouraged when, when you hear someone is praying for you? In the world of social media, We talk about being influencers. The greatest way to influence others is to pray for them. Recently, God has been encouraging me to pray for the church family the way Paul did. A few days ago, I got this card. Rise up and pray, it says. The words of Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 46, encouraging his disciples to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. I was so encouraged by these words and the words written inside the card. Why don't you and I email someone, text someone, call someone, or send them a card and let them know we are praying for them? Let's do it today. And then, not only is Paul praying for them, but he is also asking God for the opportunity to visit them. It might have been hard for them to believe this because he did not know most of them and had never been to their churches, so he adds, God is my witness. God can call me to account if I'm lying. Thus far in his life, his work in the eastern Mediterranean had consumed him completely, and he had not been able to find his way to Rome. When he arrives, however, 
Paul says he wants to impart a spiritual gift. What does he mean by spiritual gift? The word he uses for spiritual gift is the same word used for the gifts of the Spirit in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. Does he hope to impart a spiritual gift in the way that Timothy received a gift through the laying on of Paul's hands in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6? Maybe. The two passages share common language and common themes. Will Paul have a word of encouragement for the church family? Is that what he means? Is the spiritual gift the gospel teaching he will bring? For example, Paul says much about salvation in his letter to the Romans, but there is much more he could teach about the church and the second coming of Jesus. Maybe the gift will be his example of clearly, boldly, humbly sharing the good news of Jesus with the Romans. Philippians chapter 1 verse 14 implies that they were encouraged by his example of bold gospel sharing. Then notice that, at least initially, Paul seems to imply that the blessing will only flow one way. That's verse 11 from him to the Roman Christians. But in verse 12, he quickly modifies what he is saying. In actuality, Paul hopes for mutual strengthening in their faith journeys. He wants to give to them by the Spirit and then receive from them by the same Spirit. So he says, I want to give to you and receive from you. This must have really encouraged the Roman Christians. The Apostle Paul expects to receive from them. What has the Lord given you that you can share with others? As we saw in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, the golden rule, as taught by Jesus, is not about what we don't do, but it's about what we do do. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, Jesus said. What has the Lord given you to share? Again, I would encourage you to do something this week. Encourage someone else. Ask God who you should encourage and then do it. Paul says to the Roman churches, I am thankful for your faith. I pray for you constantly. I want to impart a spiritual gift. I want to give to you and receive from you. Let's follow his example. And then Paul adds that he wants to preach the gospel to them. Why would he preach the gospel to people whose faith is renowned in all the world, as he says? Again, context is important. The population of Rome was almost a million at this time. According to researcher Guido Barunjani, archaeological findings reveal that first century Rome was, like New York City, a densely populated urban region with people of very diverse origins. All of them needed the gospel. Paul says he's under obligation, that is, indebted, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to those who speak Greek and to those who speak other languages, to those considered cultured and those considered uncultured, the worldly wise and the simple, the educated and the uneducated. God had entrusted the gospel to him so that he would pass it on. He owed the gospel to all who lived in Rome. All meant all. Do we feel we owe the gospel to others? 
Paul writes in verse 9 that he serves God with his spirit by sharing the gospel. The spirit is the place of deepest thoughts and commitments, the place of communion with God, that is, the heart. The word serve, it carries the, the meaning of worship. Sharing the good news of Jesus for Paul is an act of worship from the deepest reaches of his being. Paul is eager to get to Rome to share the good news with those who do not yet know about Jesus. The Roman churches were growing vibrant communities of faith. Most likely, Paul would see people connected to the Roman churches coming to faith during his visit. But it was more than this. Paul would also want to see followers of Jesus growing in maturity and obedience through his preaching. In his letter to the Colossians, he writes that he toils with all of the energy God gives him, teaching with all the wisdom granted to him in order to see the Colossians mature in Christ. Certainly, Paul desired the same for the Roman Christians. Are we eager to share the good news? All the followers of Jesus are commissioned by Jesus. Are we not eager because we do not fully understand the gospel? Maybe we don't believe that God would actually do something if we shared how God has changed our lives. Maybe we struggle because of what Paul says next in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. Paul is not only eager to share the gospel, but also is not ashamed of it. The Roman churches, well, they may have been tempted to be ashamed of the Christian message because of their lack of size or honor in the Roman corridors of power and influence. The Jewish Christians had been expelled by their emperor Claudius in 49 AD on account of the confusion connected to the name of Christ. On their return to Rome, they may have lived with the stigma of being identified with Jesus. It would have been easy to shrink back and, and seek the path of least resistance. Paul says, I am unashamed of the gospel and am eager to share it with you. As Paul had encouraged Timothy to be unashamed of the gospel in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, so now he encourages the Roman Christians to be eager and unashamed. Paul himself has been falsely accused, beaten, shamed, and imprisoned multiple times because of his commitment to Jesus. So how could he preach without reservations in Rome? In an earlier letter to the church in Corinth, he wrote this, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. The gospel must have seemed an absurdity in Rome. An unknown Jew who suffered a disgraceful death on the eastern fringe of the Roman Empire is being proclaimed as God in human flesh. What? How could Paul be so ready to challenge the philosophies and religions so prevalent in Rome? Here's the answer. The gospel for Paul was not just another concept, a theory, or a philosophy. It was the most amazing word from God. Paul writes in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says the gospel is power. Well, Rome needed no lessons on power. It defined power, brute power, military power, conquering power, judicial power, shaming power. Rome knew all about power. But Rome did not know about the power of which Paul spoke. Paul proclaims a power that transforms people. It is the power of God bringing salvation to everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. It is not the power of state, of technology, ideas, movements, progress, or whatever. The gospel is the power of God. God says, my God, good news is one of power for salvation, for all. So what is meant by salvation? The word carries the basic meaning of being made whole. For Paul, salvation promises the restoration of all that sin has marred or destroyed in the human soul. Salvation brings, it begins with God drawing us to himself by his spirit. When we put our trust in Jesus, saving work on our behalf, we are forgiven of our sins. We are given right standing before God, justified and delivered from judgment. We come alive spiritually. Our very response to the gospel is God's power at work in us. And we are not only saved from something, we are also saved to something. We are restored to right relationship with God. We are transformed into the likeness of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. We actually have power to not sin, power to obey Jesus. In Jesus, we have authority over Satan and his demons. This is the power of the resurrection experienced in daily life. And this daily transformation changes our way of seeing things and being, it brings healing to our relationships. We have power to be family with people from around the world, power to be on mission with Jesus in a world that sometimes shames us and rejects us. And this is not all. Paul writes that we will be completely transformed at the resurrection of the dead. We have been gifted with victory over death itself. So Paul proclaims the gospel to be the power of God for salvation from beginning to end. We have been saved. We're being saved and we will be saved. As James Edwards writes, it is the only successful rescue operation which the fallen creation has ever been offered. When the good news of the gospel is preached, God's own power is unleashed. Paul has seen this power unleashed in Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Antioch, and Jerusalem, and he fully expects to see it happen in Rome. I remember riding with a UBC student on the way to the UBC campus. When he learned that I was a Christian, he patronized me with, Christianity is a, is a nice moral framework. No. <laughs> Following Jesus is not about good behavior. It's not just a nice way to manage sin. The gospel is the saving power of God available to transform everyone who believes. It is about relationship with Jesus. It changes us. 
And God says that salvation is for everyone. All means all. Paul says the gospel is for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Jewish people were privileged in the history of salvation. Through Abraham, they were chosen to be God's people for the blessing of all peoples. And they were the first to hear the gospel proclaimed by Jesus himself and then proclaimed by his disciples in Jerusalem. Paul himself followed this pattern as he traveled from city to city, always going to the Jewish synagogue first. And he did this when he arrived in Rome in Acts chapter 28. The word Greek there, in this verse, it refers to all non-Jews. They are the foreign branches grafted into the olive tree of God's people in Romans chapter 11. The gospel is for everyone who believes. Are we ashamed of this gospel for everyone? Will, will our generation stand before God in judgment say and say, no one shared the good news with us? Jesus, your people did not share the good news because they were ashamed of you. May this never be said of us. You see, the gospel of God offers something, something desperately needed by every human being. And it cannot be found anywhere else. The gospel reveals something to us. What is it? Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Some hear these words to mean the justice of God. Others hear the righteousness from God or God's righteous saving acts. How we hear these words is critical. How many times have you received an email or a text and have misunderstood the writer's intent. It's so easy to misunderstand what is being written because you don't have context. You can't hear tone of voice. You see no nonverbal gestures. And we so often read the words through our own lens of understanding, out of our own emotional state. How do we hear Paul's words to us? In the 16th century, a Roman Catholic monk was serving as a seminary professor in Wittenberg, Germany. He was preparing priests to enter the priesthood. His task was to study the book of Romans and teach it, but he was haunted by its message. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 made no sense to him at all. It was not good news for him. You see, he had been taught that the righteousness of God in verse 17 referred to the justice of God, God's punishing righteousness. God would judge him for every thought and deed. How could he ever stand before a just and holy God? Within his own heart, he saw so much selfishness and pride and rebellion. He didn't know what he could do to bridge the gap between himself and God. He went to confession every day. But no matter how hard he tried, he felt overwhelmed by his sinfulness. How could the righteousness of God be good news? This monk, he wrote, My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. There, therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather I hated and murmured against him. 
He believed that God had added pain to pain through the gospel, threatening human beings with terrible wrath. He began to hate God. Have you observed people doing penance, trying with all their might to pay for their sins and justify themselves before God? Have you ever observed self-flagellation? It is excruciatingly painful to watch. Some people hate God today because all they see is an angry God who will judge them. And then for this monk came the great realization in 1515. He wrote, Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement that the just will live by faith. Then I grasped the truth that the justice of of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. These are the words of Martin Luther in his preface to Latin writings. The righteousness of God had become his most loved phrase. What he could never do God had already done for him. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God, by allowing His Son to be crucified on a Roman cross, had provided a way for the sins of all human beings to be forgiven. Luther was no longer the object of God's wrath, but the object of His mercy. His discovery fueled the Reformation fires in 16th century Europe. Luther had come to understand that the righteousness of God meant the righteousness from God. That is the gift of full acceptance and right standing before God given to every sinful man and woman putting their trust in Jesus' saving work on the cross. This new perspective changed Luther. He came to experience the joy and freedom that was his in Christ. In the gospel, God says, I give you right standing before me as a gift. And this is for all. In Philippians chapter 3, a parallel passage, Paul contrasts his attempts to gain favor with God through religious devotion and good works with his experience of receiving the righteousness of God as a gift from God based on faith. The perennial struggle to measure up was over for him. God had declared him innocent. The barrier between him and God removed. By grace, God had accepted him. He, the chief of sinners. This is powerful. This is life-changing. Sometimes people say to me, but you don't know what I've done. God could never forgive me. He could never accept me. My sin disqualifies me. 
Listen to this. The righteousness of God also means the righteousness done by God. It is God's saving power at work, not yours. God in his holiness and justice acted rightly on your behalf. He was faithful to his promises to put things right. God's righteousness and justice were revealed in Christ's death on our behalf, meeting the demands of his holy character through the sacrifice of his own son. He provided salvation for sinners like you and me. He did what we could never do for ourselves. All means all. None of us merit salvation. That's why God says to us, now that I have done this for you, receive the good news by faith and live by faith. Faith switches the power of the gospel on. Faith is trust in a person. It's in Jesus. It's personal. Our faith has an object. It is Jesus. We trust in Jesus, not ourselves. Paul writes in chapter 1 that it is from faith for faith and then supports this idea with a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. The life of faith is all-encompassing. This walk of faith is about a lifelong relationship with Jesus. It is by faith in Jesus' saving work that we are justified before God. But it is also by faith in Jesus that we live each day. Have we heard God's word to us today? Do we receive it? More importantly, do we trust Jesus? The gospel is the power of God for salvation. From the day we believe to the day we see Jesus face to face, we embrace it by faith from beginning to end. If you have never entrusted your life to Jesus, never embrace this gift from God by faith, then I would encourage you to pray with me right now. Father, I thank you for reaching out to me, for thinking about me while I was a sinner, before I had ever thought about you. I acknowledge today that I have been trying to uh, just merit favor with you. I've been working for my own own salvation. I've tried to put things right on my own. And I acknowledge today that I need Jesus, a Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross and dying on my behalf, for taking my sin upon yourself, for paying the price I could never pay on my own for doing what I could never do. And so, Jesus, I receive you as my Savior and my Lord. Jesus, I want to follow you now in life. I want to be like you. I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit and make me to be the person you want me to be. Thank you for making me right with my Father in heaven. Thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness of all my sin. Thank you for setting me free. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. And so in gratitude, I humble myself before you and I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, then I would encourage you, really encourage you to talk to a friend uh, who follows Jesus. And you can also click that I commit myself to Jesus button on our screen, and we would love to get in touch with you and encourage you in your journey. And now 
allow me to pray for all those who follow Jesus. Father, as your disciples, as as your followers, we thank you for what you have done on our behalf through Jesus. Jesus, you have justified us before the Father. You have made us right. And now may we live out of this reality. Forgive us for when we slip back into working for our salvation, earning favor with you. No, we live under your favor. We have been saved by grace, and now we live by grace. So, Lord, as we come to you today and acknowledge that we don't follow you perfectly, we do confess our sins. We confess our pride and our rebellion. And we uh, just, again, say, Lord, we confess our sins and we thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to lead us forward by grace under the empowerment of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, continue your work of transformation in us. Make us like yourself. This week, as we follow you, may we encourage others. May we pray for our brothers and sisters in the church family. May we pray for those who do not yet know you. May we be the people that you've called us to be in this generation. May we not be ashamed of the gospel, but share it. May we share it eagerly, Lord. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in the the nation of Cuba, where there is so much suffering right now, where there is government repression on the church, where uh, the church is not able to gather the way it did in the past, where there's really limited access to the Internet, and so uh, often churches can't even gather online. We pray that they would be encouraged, Lord, in their inner being by your Holy Spirit. We pray that leaders would be creative in the way that they connect with people. We thank you for the work that continues there. Father, we pray for those who are suffering from COVID. We think of Pastor um, Joseito and uh, his family this pastor who passed away just recently after coming down with COVID. We think of the family that's left, the church family that's left. Lord, I pray that they would know your very near presence. Oh God, strengthen them today. Father, we think of people across that country that are suffering from food shortages. The economy is so depressed, it's in shambles. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are trying to help. I pray for uh, World Serve uh, doing, uh, providing food uh, through uh, the work of John Dick and others and uh, through gleaners. Father, I pray that this aid would reach your people and that they would see, God, tangibly your loving hand on them. I thank you, Father, that all things are in your hands, that you are sovereign over this moment in Cuba. And we pray that your name would be glorified, that your kingdom would come in that nation as we pray that your kingdom come and your will be done in our nation. Lord, we pray these things in your name because you are Lord over all, and we trust you. In your name we pray. Amen.